Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of The New Health Club Show. My guest today is Dr. Dave Rabin. Together with Molly Malouf, Dr. Rabin is hosting the Psychedelic News Hour on Clubhouse at 11.30 PST every Friday. This is also where I heard about Dr. Rabin first, and I was really impressed by the guests and the following the show has. Also, the show became a really important source for information and destigmatization of psychedelics, and that very fast. Dave Rabin is an MD, PhD, a neuroscientist, board-certified psychiatrist, health tech entrepreneur and inventor who has been studying the impact of chronic stress in humans for nearly 15 years, particularly non-invasive therapies for treatment-resistant illnesses like PTSD. He's the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience and the co-founder and executive director of the Board of Medicine. In addition to his clinical psychiatry practice, Dr. Rabin is currently conducting research on the epigenetic regulation of trauma responses and recovery to elucidate the mechanism of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and the neurobiology of belief. He is a practitioner of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, KAP, and is trained in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. We talk about listeners on Clubhouse that call in high and how to give them a little integration therapy on air. We talk about why epigenetic trauma is such a specific thing, hardly explored, and now really a big topic in the psychedelic context. We talk benefits of ketamine therapy done at home, and of course, we talk about Dr. Rabin's company, Apollo. Apollo Neuroscience was born from research at the University of Pittsburgh. Dave Rabin and Greg Siegel, PhD, worked together at the program in Cognitive Effective Neuroscience to develop and scientifically prove out the Apollo technology and discovered that certain combinations of low-frequency inaudible sound waves, vibration that you can't feel but can't hear, can safely and reliably change how we feel through our sense of touch and that we can measure those physiological changes in near real time. Think of Apollo as a smart bracelet that you can wear around your wrist or ankle and works to give you stress-reducing buzzes in times of need. It syncs to the brand's app so you can control its touch therapy functions from your phone. I used Apollo often during the pandemic last year and I fell asleep much easier with it. So I can highly recommend it. Apollo calms your nervous system down in a gentle way but very effective way. And since you are part of our really appreciated new health club community, you get 10% discount on the order of Apollo right now for the next 14 days. Just head over to www.apolloneuro.com and put in the promo code NEWHEALTHS10. I repeat, just head over to apolloneuro.com and put in the promo code NEWHEALTHS10. Please keep us posted how you like the device and how you use it also. All right. And now over to Dr. Dave Rabin. Welcome Dave Rabin on the show. And I know you're, you could say, um, besides that you're an MD and PhD, you're also one of the biggest clubhouse stars at the moment. <laughs> oh, thank you. At least this is how I, I got to know of you, because you host, together with Molly Malouf, you host the Psychedelic Hour, right? And um, you're also the founder of the Psychedelic Clubhouse, which when Clubhouse landed in Europe or in Germany um, a couple of months ago, this was immediately one of the biggest, let's say, attractions um, in, in your show, but also like the whole existence and presence of psychedelics suddenly in, in the clubhouse field. So um, how did this actually happen that you, you became basically, let's say, I mean, it's kind of impossible, but the face of the psychedelic clubhouse? Oh, well, thanks so much <laughs> for having me. I really appreciate it, Anne. It's of a pleasure. And it's been good to have you as part of the psychedelic uh, clubhouse group, of course. Okay. Uh, the short answer is that yeah. 
there's there's just been a lot of misinformation and poor understanding about psychedelic medicines and how they work uh, and psychedelic states more generally what they mean how to access them with or without medicines how to use the medicines properly safely with uh, in a respectful way to minimize harm and we saw this as clinicians you know dr molly maloof is also a physician and uh, we saw this in the community at large, particularly in the Silicon Valley investor community, which is actually in large part where Clubhouse came from, okay. or was you know sort of boosted off into the world in that group. And so we just we as soon as we got the opportunity to beta test Clubhouse in the early days, this is going back to July of 2020, uh, we realized that this was a huge opportunity to educate. Right. And being physicians, we're also educators, even though that may not be uh, uh, always a huge part of a doctor's um, work. But, you know, we see it as a responsibility to educate. And so the, the psychedelic clubhouse became an opportunity for people to have these conversations that were just not being had anywhere else. And clubhouse was a really incredible um, medium as one of the first of its kind in the conversational manner that it creates to be able to have these open dialogues of communication about psychedelic states and psychedelic medicines and things that are otherwise considered taboo in the medical community um, and to share that information uh, with the community at large. Okay. But I mean, so I feel like it developed very fast, right? I mean, you have like at at this point, I just looked it up like 28,000 followers. And I mean, Clubhouse doesn't exist that long, right? I mean, it's just, it's not like Facebook or, or Instagram. So, and it feels like um, you you were one of the people who really introduced the topic also to a very big audience, or you could almost say like to a mainstream audience. So, and, and what do you think is especially important to, let's say, um, introduce a topic like that to a big audience, which you guys obviously are doing very well. And it's, 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 I mean, I remember like the first shows when I listened to it, it was still like confinement. It was dark. You couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> so, and it was like, Oh, tonight is the psychedelic hours on. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go anywhere. <laughs> so, and it was like, like, I mean, a little bit like a Saturday night evening show when you were a child, when it were like three shows on television and then you waited for these shows. So what do you think was, I'm not going to say the charm, but what do you think that people obviously engaged in this very fast? So I think there's a couple of reasons. I think, you know, the first of which is, again, having a, this, is, this was at the time that the Psychedelic News Hour was, came out, which was in July of yeah. 2020. There were no other opportunities that were out there to have a voice dialogue, right? A spoken dialogue, not only about psychedelic uh, experiences, but also with experts in the field, right? Mm -hmm. People who who are practitioners like us, people who conduct research in the psychedelic space like we do, and who can present an, you know, an unbiased evidence-based approach or as unbiased as can be evidence-based approach that is you know sharing newsworthy content with the community that is not accessible elsewhere and having discussions that we facilitate that are not accessible elsewhere and i think that you know because of the timing of when that that happened it generated a very quick following because people realized the uniqueness of the experience that is the psychedelic news hour and I really appreciate uh, how much uh, you enjoyed it as well. And thank you for your for your kind words. Um, and I think the other part of it is that because of COVID, right? There, is, you know, and because of, or the the you know isolation um, required for public health, particularly in 2020, there was a a certain desire for from in all of us that was very high in a lot of respects for that sense of community that was lacking, right? And so Clubhouse. As an, as an app filled a very specific niche in that way where people started gravitating to it because they got a sense of community that they weren't getting in their day-to-day lives mm-hmm. because they were isolated or quarantined for a large part of the year. Yeah. And then having a place like the Psychedelic Clubhouse and the Psychedelic News Hour became a really interesting part of that bigger uh, picture. And now we have, I think, over 60,000 followers in the Psychedelic Clubhouse itself of people who are you know, to one extent or another, actively engaged in our, in our content. And, 
And I think the other part of it is, as you said, just to wrap it up, you know, to answer your question, the idea of, of radio shows like yeah. you were talking about back in the day <laughs> is something that was really appealing, right? Because even if you don't choose to participate, you have the opportunity in a lot of respects to call in and participate and interact with the people who are on the show and leading the show. And that's overwhelmingly been lost in the podcast and the news media TV world. You don't, nobody calls into a TV show no. uh, most of the time, right? Nobody calls into a podcast most of the time. It's very much non-audience participatory. And yeah. so we saw that as an opportunity to really engage the audience and bring together a conversation that wasn't just us, right? It was, it was us with people from the community who were expressing their views and their interests and, you know, what drives them into this, into this movement. And, um, and so that's, I think, to, all together how this really took off the way it did. No, absolutely. And, uh, and I think um, I had, I mean, I feel like there were more, way more conversations, I mean, at least in Germany around that time. But I mean, we had a couple of times if it came to psychedelics or, I mean, for new health club shows, we had often the case that people called in who were actually high. And like, you, first of all, you really didn't know. And they were like, yeah, I think I'm going. And then suddenly you were like, oh, no, I'm fucked. It's kind of, what can I say to bring this person now to either like ask a real question? So, and uh, I mean, it was sometimes very difficult to, I mean, you don't want to kick out people. I mean, some people were very rude and strict and were like cutting people off. But I mean, so what was your, your best experience so far with these kind of interventions <laughs> in the show? That's a, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. I think we haven't had that many people come up and participate when they're under the influence of a substance, but we have had some. Um, and I think, you know, most of them when they come up, you know, it's always an interesting uh, interaction. And I think yeah. the, uh, for most of the people who come up, we kind of, you know, they're very, they're very complimentary for one, you know, most of them are in a very good pl place in their minds and they're really enjoying the conversation first off. Yeah. And so they come up and they just, you know, they give a lot of positive feedback and talk about how it's been benefiting them to hear this kind of stuff uh, being talked about. And that's, that's really always encouraging. And I think we just generally try to, you know, mainly because being on a phone or being actively engaged in a conversation takes away from that internal experience of being on a psychedelic medicine and doing psychedelic medicine based uh, healing work or facilitated healing work. So we, tr and, and so we try to use in some ways the therapy therapeutic approach that we use in the treatment when we're actually working with a patient, which is called a non-directive approach. So we kind of gently guide the person to recognize where their head's at and then that they'd probably be better off hanging out and just turning their phone off and, and enjoying the experience and taking it in for what it is rather than talking about it or distracting themselves from it in the way that they might be with their phone. Um, so, so this is the same thing that we do in, in therapy as well, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's a, when people get distracted, they want to, they want to talk about something else. They want to think about something that's not a personal thing. Yeah. Um, they, or they get distracted by something that's in the, going on in the room or in the environment. We always just try to gently nudge them sort of back inside themselves and kind of into a self-reflective state. That's a, that's actually good advice for, I mean, for, for, for any high customers coming in <laughs> next time. <laughs> Let's switch to to your really impressive work that you're also doing. So, and I, I think speaking of of therapy, that we were just the, the therapy on Clubhouse. One of your topics, I feel, I mean, I, I read a lot about you, is um, basically PT, like the treatment of PTSD, right? And any kind of stress related things that we can talk about later about um, Apollo, of course. But I feel like this topic of let's call it post-COVID, although we're still in the middle of COVID, PTSD, which was a topic I feel like a couple of months ago, um, maybe maybe only on LinkedIn, where people were like, well, I mean, there will be, the mental health crisis will be kind of tripled or, or quadrupled, and um, there will be also like post-COVID PTSD. And I feel like with a lot of people, They, I mean, maybe maybe the whole world, I don't know, is kind of suffering from this right now in terms of there's an underlying tension, an underlying 
stress factor? What is it going to be next year? Is, do we get a, need a booster? Can we get the booster? And what does it mean? Like all these kind of almost like a, like a very subtle new layer of, of stress elements is coming to the daily life. And um, my question would be, so, I mean, is, is there, or the first question would be, is there anything that you detect that is, that is kind of showing you this, that people are kind of engaging even more in, in, in kind of stressful or stressed out behaviors? Is this something that you witness in your practice? For sure. And, and I think that while stress and the level of it in the prior to the pandemic, you know, prior to 2020 may have been deniable for most people. I think the pandemic and the isolation really brought forth the undeniability of the stress that we're all facing because of the demands of modern life. Right. And it's not to say that it's anyone's individual, any one individual's fault. It's not right. It's the idea that we are just overstimulated and overwhelmed by by a whole lot of modern technology and sensory input and also a lot of responsibilities that we didn't have even 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, right? Um, the idea that you now go to work, you, you start, many people start work when they pick up their phones in the morning before they even get to the office, yeah. right? And then they get to the office or, and then they work, you know, assuming you work in an office still, and then you're working the whole day and then you come back and your day does not necessarily end when you leave because you can still get pinged on your mobile device. And you're still exposed to screens and you're still exposed to news inputs and you're still exposed to people talking about the news and to all the other responsibilities that go along with being a human being. And, and so that is, you know, different in a lot of ways than what we used to face. And it, what it does is it puts us into a state of what we call a sympathetic dominant state or a state of sort of chronic stress. And by sympathetic, I mean the sympathetic nervous system, which is that fight, flight, or freeze response nervous system that is evolved in all mammals and most animals to turn on uh, when we perceive threat from the environment. And it's supposed to turn on with survival threat, not emails, not our kids screaming, not responsibilities. It's you know not somebody looking at this funny in a meeting. It's supposed to turn on in response to lack of food, water, air, shelter, or potentially the lack of even acceptance by our community, right? That, those are the kinds of things that can turn on the stress response and, and, and are evolved to turn on the stress response. But when that stress response is turned on all the time, all of our available resources in our bodies, like the blood, the oxygen, um, et cetera, are going to our heart, our lungs, our motor cortex of our brains, our fear center of our brains, and the part of our bodies and our brains that are supposed to get us out of a stressful survival threatening situation, which is not thankfully most situations that most of us are facing on a daily basis are, are not actual survival threat situations. And that is taking away resources on a continuous basis from our recovery system, which is called the parasympathetic nervous system or the rest and digest nervous system that is responsible for, you know, allocating activating a response to safety and allocating resources to everything that our bodies do to recover. So sleep, uh, regulating metabolism, emotions, empathy, digestion, reproduction, immunity, and our ability to fight off illness. All of these things are only able to get resources and energy devoted to them when we're, when we feel safe. So when we haven't been taught safety techniques to do when we're young, like deep breathing, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, um, and soothing touch or soothing music or, you know, how to use any of these other tools, then we have an over, overabundance of threatening or potentially threatening stimuli that is, un, is unbalanced. And practicing the safety techniques, whether it's deep breathing or soothing touch or meditation or yoga or using Apollo or any of the other things we've talked about over time can help to restore that balance. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe you can explain, I mean, now that we're just already talking about it, like, so you created Apollo, which I used and it's very, it's a very interesting feeling. <laughs> so I'm, um, I'm between the aura ring and Apollo the whole time. <laughs> this is my life now, basically. But I mean, it's a very interesting tool that where you think like, oh, 
like these little kind of hits against my ankle, what is it supposed to do? But it has a very interesting influence on you. Maybe you can just explain to our listeners what, what Apollo actually is that you co-created, co right? Sure, yeah. Yeah, we, Apollo is a technology that came out of the, my research at the University of Pittsburgh um, on studying how to help people who have too much chronic stress because we know that stress makes performance worse, physical and mental performance. So if we could, and we know that deep breathing and meditation and biofeedback and float tanks and all of these techniques boost performance and have significant performance outcomes. And this is particularly well known in the athletic literature, which is very interesting that um, we know that if that we, there was a, a large amount of evidence that if you provide these balancing parasympathetic recovery, safety-based stimuli to the body, that you could restore balance in the autonomic nervous system, the stress response system and recovery response system, and then help people reach a higher level of cognitive performance and functioning and potentially physical performance and functioning. And so with that in mind, with the main idea of trying to help our patients with post-traumatic stress disorder, many of whom were veterans, the idea who also have this chronic stress, but to an extreme, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we basically tried to tap into the ability to activate that nervous system with soothing touch through the pathway of soothing touch in the skin, which is basically taking the benefits of music that we all know and touch that we all know to exist in our lives, where you can walk into a room or turn on the radio and you hear your favorite song playing. And it's just like, you're in the moment with that song and you're not thinking about all the crazy other crap that happened to you during the day. You're just in, in the moment. And music has such an incredible ability to shift our energy and mood states up or down or in all across different spectrums. And we don't even really think about it. And it's the same with touch. So thinking about that, we said, okay, well, you can't listen to music all the time. And there's lots of different musical interventions out there. What if we took the patterns and rhythms that we understood to be important for music and then composed sound waves that, that were for the skin, touch receptors instead of the ears, that could help to provide the similar benefits of music and soothing touch to via the skin rather than having to monopolize your ears so that you can use it during a talk or you can use it when you're socializing with friends or when you're being intimate with a partner or when you're uh, need to focus and do work for an extended period of time and it's not distracting and it doesn't take you out of the moment it actually helps you to be more present by centering your mind back in your body similar to the way getting a hug from a loved one or somebody you like holding your hand or taking a deep breath would do mm -hmm. So that means um, you can also, you, you can order it and just like connect it to an app on your phone. And then you can choose also, do you use it for before you, I mean, I use it always before I go to sleep or then in the morning to wake up. So you have like the whole scenario for, for a whole day for what you can use it, right? So to wake up or to, to wind down, basically. Right. And that, and that, I think, is to give you the idea, this yeah. is what Apollo looks like on the wrist. Uh, it has yeah. these, these two buttons that you can use to control it without your uh, phone. And yeah. the idea being that, you know, Apollo is not a tracker, right? We have enough devices that, that track us. I, what we wanted to do was use a bottom-up learning strategy where instead of telling somebody something, which is top-down, and then having them follow instructions to achieve an outcome, which only works at best 50% of the time, even if it's your yeah. doctor telling you to do it, that if you, that, and the reason for that is because when we're stressed, change is automatically harder. We, our bodies and our minds oppose change and newness when we're stressed because it triggers our fear response because it's unfamiliar and it's new and it's mm -hmm. uncertain. Um, by calming the body, it allows us to get into a centered state where we feel calm enough to embrace change, right? And to yeah. embrace new opportunities that could potentially be better than what we've been doing before. So by using Apollo, you can like music, turn your, your, you know, send faster, more intense vibrations to the body, like energy and wake up, which give you energy and help you to, you know, get motivated to go about your day similar to caffeine, but you can turn it on and off yeah. as you wish through things like social and open, which is great for socializing when you're tired or giving presentations or meetings or being creative and doing creative work to clear and focused, which is for intense sustained focus, which is one of the modes that I use for public speaking a lot of the time. Um, 
and uh, doing intense deep work, and then rebuild and recover, which is the post-stress, physical, mental, or emotional to rapidly calm the body down. Um, and then meditation mindfulness, which helps to improve access to meditative states, but also induces sort of a calm flow state that's great for a lot of people for aches and pains, all the way down through the most calming of the Apollo vibrations, which are relaxing and unwind. Uh, which is great for deep relaxation before bed and just calming the body into a more, uh, you know, safe sort of wound down, slower thinking state so that you can more easily transition into sleep, which is when you can use the sleep and renew, which really helps you fall asleep more quick, helps people fall asleep more quickly and access deeper, more restorative sleep more easily, which is really interesting. And now we actually have studies in the real world with thousands of people that using using other wearable technology has shown us that this is in fact the effect that we were seeing in the lab is seen in the real world as well where people are having improved cardiovascular fitness metrics from using apollo improved deep sleep and rem sleep from using apollo and total sleep over time which is really exciting because it shows that we're actually reconditioning the body over time to function at a higher level and get a better uh you know much more significant amount of recovery Yeah, I mean, it feels very interesting shortly before sleep. Um, you also, um, coming back to our favorite topic, psychedelics, you're also a, like a psychedelic yeah, therapist and you also work with ketamine. And I found very interesting, which I read in an interview that you gave, um, how ketamine therapy could or is already triggered because of COVID, already used um, in combination with telemedicine which is for a lot of people, I mean, especially in Europe, still like a very strange idea that you're at home, let's say home alone, <laughs> and then you take your ketamine and um, basically probably you meet your therapist over Zoom or over yeah, a, a telemedicine variation and uh, he or she guides you through the trip. So I assume that you have a couple of experiences, especially because there was a long time last year where you, when you couldn't go into any practice, right? So maybe you can talk a little bit about how this looked like and how your experience was with that kind of very new idea for most people. Sure. Um, and, and just so that everybody knows who is unfamiliar with ketamine, ketamine is uh, it's, it's, it's probably, in when you think about on large scales, the only legal psychedelic medicine that is available in every state of the United States and almost every country of the world. Uh, because it's because of its utility and, and legality uh, as an anesthetic agent, which it's been used for at much higher doses than it's used for psychotherapy, but it's been used as an anesthetic for probably close to 70 years. Um, and so it's been very well studied and its uh, you know side effect and, and risk profile are very well understood. And so it makes, and it also provides a very interesting psychedelic experience that doesn't require very high doses and is also um, very short acting, right? So it only lasts about in total, in terms of the peak experience, it's only about an hour and a half in duration. And then there's a little bit of a time afterwards where people start to feel like they're coming back into their bodies and they're feeling more centered and, and, but, but very much consciously aware and sort of, you know, coming back into themselves. So it's, it's very safe and it's very easy to use, you know, respectively in a clinical setting in the office, it also lends itself very well to telemedicine because you can administer it in, especially in the U.S., and I'm not sure about in other countries, but there are pharmacies in the U.S. that make low-dose ketamine in oral lozenges and in nasal sprays that's very inexpensive because, uh, you know, the most basic form of, of pharmaceutical-grade ketamine is uh, off-patent. And so you can get custom compounding pharmacies in the U.S. to make these very like lower dose uh, administration uh, forms like oral lozenges or trochies and nasal sprays. We mostly, we actually entirely use the oral lozenge form that dissolves in your mouth. Um, and, uh, you know, at low doses, which are basically what we call the minimum effective dose to get a uh, psychedelic or psychoactive, a significant psychoactive effect, um, we see dramatically transformative experiences in people in conjunction with psychotherapy, of course, which we do usually one or, or several sessions before to prep people before they go into the ketamine experience. 
And then we do sit with them on Zoom and we, and we, for their first and sometimes second or third experience, but we basically focus on teaching them how to use the medicine on their own and really empowering them to do so. Um, and then working with us in between sessions more than during, because during you're really in it, right? And you're not, you're not that, most people aren't that communicative, but it's the before and after where there's a wealth of information that becomes available to us to work with and to help in what we call integrate that learnings of that ketamine experience into their day-to-day -day practice. And so that is incredible because it improves access to care. Um, it helps people get access to ketamine at home, which is really exciting. Um, and it helps people who would normally not be able to make it to a clinic or not be able to make it to a clinic where they get the medicine and psychotherapy from the same, you know, providers, uh, which is pretty uncommon actually um, in the US. Usually it's just medicine and then you have to have a separate therapist. Um, and so having that all in one that you can access from the comfort of your home is really, really convenient for people. And, and it, it really makes it easier in general to just access high quality mental health care, which is really exciting. So that means you, you get the, how, how do you call it? The one that you can take orally? A lozenge. Lozenge, yeah. So you, you take it, you're at home. Let's say you're on your couch, so you take it a couple of minutes later. I mean, I just experienced the IV version, which is like, <laughs> so you're out in a very short time. So then you, you're on your, let's say, couch or bed. So you, let's say you, you start the trip, let's call it. And that is like up to an hour, right? I mean, one hour and a half, you said. So, and then do you talk to the, let's say, the online therapist like straight afterwards? Or how does it work? Yeah, so so yeah. we usually have, um, and, and this is this is uh, related to the protocol that I was trained under, which is Dr. Phil Wolfson's protocol. He's yeah. one of the found, founders and leading psychiatrists in the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy space, who founded the Ketamine Research Foundation, which uh, and the, which I highly recommend everyone look up who's interested in learning more about this uh, tool. But um, the way we do it is the lozenges dissolve in your mouth and they absorb through your mouth. Ketamine is a very interesting chemical structure in that it has to be, it, you, it, the, the gut digests it, all, most of it, almost immediately when you swallow it. So if you swallow 100 milligrams of ketamine, then you probably will only absorb about 10 milligrams of it. So that's about 10%. If you swish the ketamine in your mouth, the lozenges for 12 to 15 minutes, then you absorb closer to 25 to 30%. And so, you know, that allows us to, to figure out roughly how long you need to swish, what dose of ketamine you swish for, you know, 12 to 15 minutes, and then you uh, swallow whatever medicine's left. And that does two things. Number one, it creates a certain respect for the medicine experience. It requires a bit of an investment and commitment because swishing medicine in your mouth for 15 minutes is not pleasant to anyone. Um, and it's not as easy to access as just taking a pill or shooting something in your nose. Um, so people really are, you know, who decide to go through with this treatment are committed to the experience and don't, uh, we haven't had any cases of anyone abusing the oral ketamine lozenges because of the nature of how they're used, which is really great. Um, and we do work with people who have a history of substance abuse disorders as well. Um, so that's very exciting. Um, and the other part of it is that we do preparation when we start the experience as well as in sessions before, but for the first half an hour or so when we meet, it's like a two and a half hour or to three hour long uh, clinical session And we have two therapists present, or one one psychiatrist and one therapist, um, and in some cases two psychiatrists, depending on who's available. And then we, you know, chat with you to prepare you for the experience. Then you switch the medicine. In about 15 minutes or 20 minutes after switching the medicine, you start to feel the effects come on, and then those effects then last for about 60 to 90 minutes. And then you're wearing a blindfold. There's music playing. And you're in it. And some people talk and, and say whatever comes up and they have the words to describe it. And other people don't have the words and they're just kind of immersed in that, in that experience. And it's a really interesting experience because what it is, which is similar to other psychedelics, but ketamine, I think, does this particularly well, is that it helps us recognize that we have this internal narrative playing on a tape that's almost like on loop. 
repeat over and over and over again for as long as we can remember. And it's been on so long on repeat that we don't even realize that there's a tape playing in the background that is playing a story about that we tell ourselves about how, who we are and what it means to be alive and you know what things different things in the world mean to us and and you know our sense of self-worth and all of those things are kind of encompassed in this tape based on what we were taught from children so you so you take when people take ketamine in the right circumstances it's almost like for a mo brief moment pressing pause on that tape for the and people recognize oh my god there's been a tape playing Right. And then as soon as you recognize right. And as soon as you recognize that that narrative it's is, true. is, it's totally true. Yeah. Then you can say you, you realize opportunities to die, to, yeah. to remodel or revise that narrative. But I mean, I I've, I've done this um, kind of ketamine therapy with um, a part. The second part was more with uh, hypnosis. Like, you know, what, what basically in the first round you, look into, um, let's say, new ideas about yourself. And then in the second round, you integrate it into your, you put in a new tape, you could say. And I mean, I found it super interesting what kind of, um, let's say, role models, new role models in, in the first round came up, like people from like characters from movies, from, from history, <laughs> which I never expected to see. So which all hint to an idea that you might develop about yourself. But another interesting thing that you're researching, which I find to me is one of the most fascinating things is the epigenetic trauma. It's always, a, I find kind of not so easy to explain. So maybe you could just, um, because I, I read an interview with where you explained it so well, maybe that um, would be amazing if you could just explain in general, what this is and how it actually contributes to a whole new idea of, um, of mental health that we're looking into now. Uh, absolutely. Um, this is one of my favorite subjects also. Okay, good. Um, so, so most people don't know what epigenetics is, so I'll just break that down. Yeah. So, so great. most people know what DNA is and what genetics means and genetics is referring to the DNA, right? So it's referring to these four letters that are represent molecules that are called, uh, that, that are known as ACs, Ts, and Gs that are all bonded together in the double helix that is DNA. What's really important to know though, is that almost every single cell in our body, except for, you know, gametes like uh, germ cells, eggs, and sperm have the entirety of that DNA code in those cells, right? So our skin cells and our brain cells and our stomach lining cells all have the exact same code in them as each other. They have the whole code of the whole per human being. However, the cell types like the skin and, and the specific parts of the brain and the gut lining and all the different cells of our body still know what kinds of cells to become and how to function, even though they have the entirety of the code of the whole body in them. And the reason for that is because of epigenetics, which is means on the DNA, there are little chemical markers that tell different parts of that code, the DNA itself, to turn up or turn down expression of different proteins, which then turn into the functioning of the cell and are responsible fundamentally for the functioning of any given cell and how that cell looks and what it, what it becomes. And so interestingly enough, when what uh, Dr. Rachel Yehuda in uh, when she, at Yale and, and Mount Sinai discovered that people who have PTSD, contrary to the to the opinion at the time, had actually low cortisol, not high cortisol, and it was thought that they had high cortisol. But it turns out that it's the opposite, and nobody really understood why. But when she, and actually denied the findings. But when she further investigated the, that concept, what she found was that there are markings on the DNA, these epigenetic markings that are changing on the different genes in the cortisol receptor system and the cortisol system and in other stress response proteins in the body that are impacted by trauma directly. So people who have been traumatized and now it's been replicated causally in animals that have experienced trauma in a laboratory setting, the trauma itself is inducing changes on the DNA, really affecting the, the way that certain 
uh, parts of our, of our stress response genes are turned up or turned down over time. And that this is actually impacting not just what Eric Kandel found, which was the way that our neurons talk to each other and talk to other parts of the body and the strength and power of those connections, but also the way that the code itself is stored and the memory around that code is stored. And so why is that really fascinating? Well, it's particularly fascinating because when people who have had trauma have offspring, and especially when that trauma is very significant, even when those offspring are raised, and this is the same for animals, in a safe and otherwise safe environment, those people still carry or are very likely to carry the same epigenetic modifications caused by that trauma that happened to their parents or to their grandparents. And it can pass on in laboratory studies that shown at least four generations in humans. We don't have guaranteed safe environments. So it could be six, eight, 10, 12, 14 generations, who knows? But the point yeah. is that, that what, what happens to us and that we do not resolve within ourselves in our lifetimes gets passed on to our children on their DNA, on their code, and actually does, you know, has been found to increase or, or, or indicate or suggest a predisposition to developing PTSD or depression, which is a first observation, right? If your parents experience severe trauma, then you're more likely to develop PTSD and depression. And um, there's a partially environmental component to that, which is what most people thought was the majority of the component. But now it's, it's clear through the epigenetic work that it's the environment and the genetics together, and that the epigenetic code is storing information from the environment on DNA. And so this is actually very encouraging because if the environment, if negative experiences from the environment can shift our DNA expression patterns, then positive experiences from the environment, can, like healing experiences and awe-inspiring experiences may also be able to shift our expression of stress response genes. And so it gives us a whole different understanding, as you alluded to earlier, about how we can approach mental illness now by understanding that this is a whole body thing. It's not, it's not just a, a mental thing. It's not just mental illness, it's illness. It's all health is compromised because it goes all the way down to the DNA. I mean, I think this, um, this book, the, the body keeps the score is a little bit like, you know, but that's, that's maybe even not with the epigenetic question, but it's still kind of in that topic, I feel, but, but, so, and, and you mentioned her, Rachel Yehuda, she researches this in the context of Holocaust survivors or people who have been in, in a concentration camp and their families or their family trauma. And um, I mean, of course, now the super interesting new thing around this topic is how you can actually break the cycle with a mostly MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. That's her, that's her research, I guess the moment um which will be well, i mean other therapies too actually it started it yeah. started with okay. uh cbt okay. and not okay. and non-drug therapies that was actually the first hint that oh, okay. these remodeling positive remodeling was yeah. happening yeah and then mdma is now the current study that we're doing which is also showing promising results so you researching on that too at the moment yeah, so I'm actually working with uh, MAPS and Rachel oh. Yehuda and oh, oh, uh, okay. Dr. Rael Khan at um, University of Southern California and Dr. Joe Tafur um, of the Mod Modern Spirit nonprofit um, to basically look at what is changing in the epigenetic code, in particularly in stress response genes like cortisol before and after MDMA-assisted psychotherapy with subjects from the current MAPS Phase three FDA trial with MDMA. Wow, okay. That's super interesting. I mean, and I think to me, honestly, when I heard this the first time, that kind of research and that kind of, let's say, topic at all. So, I mean, um, I think I just had read something back then about um, Jan Bastians, the, the Dutch psychiatrist who treated um, people coming straight from, from the concentration camp with LSD therapy. But then this kind of, you know, he had to stop it and it became, he had to move underground. And now, of course, the topic's coming back and people remember him. But it was kind of a, the first, maybe one of the few first steps in that direction. But I mean, so to me, the most interesting thing with this 
that it moves also the conversation away from from strictly let's say uh, political reasons how or like or, or society reasons how let's say a german society could actually um just think of the holocaust once a year and then <laughs> The work is done and um, let's move on because it's Christmas and it's another topic. So that means that that kind of epigenetic tradition also in, in a German trauma, and not only on, on the Jewish side, um, in terms of the aggressor, is so ingrained in this culture and in the country that if you really think about it, it it's kind of um, impossible to that it's kind of addressed properly. So I know that's a really big question and it's the topic is probably just, let's say, being for, kind of talked about by people like you and, and Rachel. But how is your perspective on, let's say, the whole question around this that will affect like a whole thinking about how a society works or how a country works or how a country could have like a, um, yeah, every country could, ha could actually suffer from PTSD as a country or as a nation. Do you know what I mean? Or is this yeah, too, yeah, too abstract? But, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. I, I love the hard questions. You know, I think that you're, you know, so, for, and first off, I wanted to mention that I, I, of course, forgot two people who were working on the MDMA epigenetics trial. Candace Lewis at ASU and uh, Ben Kamendi at Yale are also uh, collaborators on that trial. Uh, but to, to get back to your question, you know, I think that a big part of the struggle with treating and or, you know, even for those of us who do not meet diagnostic criteria for PTSD um, is the denial the, and the social narrative that uh, we deny it systematically, then we reject the opportunity to be aware of it and to become aware of mistakes we've made in the past so that we can learn from them and grow and become stronger, better versions of ourselves, better versions of our communities, show up better for our, our communities at large, and also be better role models, as you were alluding to earlier, right? That we do, whether we believe it or not, are role models for others around us and influence others around us with our behavior and with the way we speak and the way we communicate. And showing up better ourselves is, of course, one of the first and most important things to making our nations and our communities better and, and, and being supportive of each other, right? Showing up in a non-judgmental way, for instance, is critical to making sure that people understand it's okay to talk about being hurt, to talk about feeling shame and guilt, knowing that these are feelings that every human being feels, right? It's not that even though it feels extremely personal and unique to you, it is also at the same time something that every human being on the face of the earth has felt at some point or many points in their lives. So there's no point in denying it. There's no point in rejecting it. That's just a, you know, that's just a waste of, of our precious human energy. Ultimately, the best thing that we can do is dive in face first, or as Mila, you know, the famous uh, Buddhist monk Milarepa said, you know, throw your head in the mouth of the beast and say, eat me if you will. And then we'll find out sooner than we thought that that beast is actually something we create in our heads and it will disappear. Mm. Right. Yeah, that's true. And I think, I mean, there are a couple of books about, um, let's say if it comes to Germany, like that there's a certain anxiety that has been transferred from people who were in the second world war to their grandchildren or like grand grandchildren And I mean, it's interesting before I engaged, engaged in my own psychedelic experience, I had always this underlying, like sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle anxiety for not having enough, like whatever it was, like money, food, um, <laughs> career opportunities. And, and although it didn't match the reality at all, and I could never really answer why this feeling of not having enough, where it actually could come from. And obviously, I mean, like people, that's what people didn't, didn't have anything after this war. And my, grand, my grandfather was, was in the Second World War. So, and it was always about not having enough, but also just not being able to look outside your, in, like your, your, your very small community and neighborhood. And for example, we had over lunch, I mean, I never talked about this, what we had after school, I went to my grandparents for lunch. And I think... Every second lunch, I asked them if they had known something about Auschwitz. And they said, 
well, later on. So, and it was okay. Of course, you could say, well, there wasn't the internet at that time. But I mean, still, I, I kept asking that question. They, could, they didn't have an answer to this. So, and I thought that was so interesting that why did we talk about Auschwitz over lunch, which I realized now because I was 12 years old. And then until Chernobyl happened, you talked about um, Chernobyl from that point on, but then we came back to Auschwitz actually, to that conversation. And back then I didn't realize why I kept asking them because there was obviously something in the air that was not really addressed whatsoever. So, and, and um, I think, what, what I really think about a lot in terms of the psychedelic topic now is like, it seems that there's, and, and you talk about this too, like re-traumatizing element is something also very strong that's coming out in people's, let's say, healing or recovery in, in psychedelic experiences. So that you suddenly have moments, for example, a lot of Germans, including myself, go on a psilocybin trip and the first thing, again, they see, that happened to me, um, like I had a, a long conversation with a rabbi in Auschwitz. A friend of mine was like, well, I was in the Russian front as, an, uh, as a soldier because my, my grandfather was there. So, I mean, I'm not saying this is strictly re-traumatizing, but it, is, it brings something back to you that you obviously have to maybe address in a way. Yeah. I'd love to know yeah. what is your take on, on re-traumatizing, re-traumatization, and, how, and why is it maybe something good for a quick second? I mean, it's a really great question, and I'm, I'm really glad you asked it because I think it's rare that people like us get to have sort of this, this kind of conversation candidly because it's a hard yeah. conversation to have, and, yeah. Yeah. and it's obviously painful for many, many people on all sides. And I think that... There, there are a couple different ways to look at it. To, to the point you were making earlier, the, the mechanism of how we change, how we heal and how we transform and, and overcome trauma um, and grow from it is starting to become known and it's starting to become more understood on a, sci on a basic scientific level which is really exciting because it's starting to help us as you know destigmatize a lot of the uh, connotation and the and the <clears throat> views that have been passed on for generations about psychedelic experiences and about trauma and healing experiences themselves it's not just a suck it up type of situation these the suck it up mentality will get you over very small challenges, but when you're facing yeah. real big challenges, it's not gonna do the trick. People need support. They need to feel safe. They need love and affection um, and compassion and to heal. And these are the healing, the emotional healing tools that are critical that we all can give to each other for free. Um, and I think that there's a really, there's a really interesting, you know, situation where when we talk about psychedelic medicines, a lot of people perceive based on the understanding of these medicines that they're all good or they're all bad, right? And then there's a group in the middle that understands the fine points of they can be good and they can be unpleasant yeah. depending on your situation. Um, to that point, the whole way that psychedelic medicines work is they're really non-specific amplifiers, right? So they amplify both, they amplify everything. They don't just amplify joy, they amplify everything. And yeah. psyche, psychedelic actually means to show the mind, right? Psyche means mind, delos means to show. So what we're talking about is taking a medicine or in the most common way that we experience psychedelic states, which is not medicine induced at all, would be through dreams or meditation. It's a very similar kind of experience where, uh, you know, depending on, on how much you lean into it, that you are having the filter between your conscious, your conscious ego self, the part of you that's typically driving and driving your, your person and your attention that's awake and, and active most of the day, that part of you kind of takes a backseat for a little while. That internal narrative about who you are and how you see yourself in the world is paused for a brief moment. And you're able to then sort of shine a spotlight at yourself and look what's beneath the surface, right? So if you imagine that the amount of stuff we know is like an iceberg, 
that little bit that's sticking out of the eye, out of the water that you see is our consciousness. That's what we're aware of. And then the rest of that iceberg, which could be 90% plus of that iceberg is everything we know about ourselves and the world that is not within our awareness. So when you take a medicine like a psychedelic medicine, or you take a, or you enter into a deep, long meditative state or trance, or even, you know, through dreaming, what happens is that we now become aware for a certain amount of time of all of that stuff beneath the surface. And then that creates an opportunity when it's done in a respectful and, you know, thoughtful way where you set an intention and you've done some preparation and some integration planned around the experience that you can just lean in and feel safe to evaluate what's down there. And then whether it, whether it's a hurt part of yourself or an ashamed part of yourself or a guilty part of yourself or an angry part or a sad part, or it's a happy or joyful or ecstatic, excited part or inspired part. The point is all of those parts exist simultaneously. And so when you're taking a psychedelic medicine, any of them can come up depending on what intention you bring into your experience. If you bring in a disorganized, not well thought out intention, then it's very, or your intention is to escape from yourself chances are something unpredictable is going to come up and it may not be something that you are particularly excited to, to address in that moment. Yeah. However, those can, those same experiences when there is a little intention behind the healing process, even if it's something as simple as expressing gratitude for yourself for getting to this experience, taking this time and, and expressing gratitude for anything that comes up is, you know, one way that reframes experience to turn that potentially unpleasant thing or shameful feeling that comes up in you during an experience into an opportunity for growth and radical transformation that can be, you know, life-changing. Um, and so, and, and so, yes, you can absolutely re-traumatize yourself. People, I've known people who have done this through Vipassana retreats though, you know, it's right. not necessarily yeah. something that's just around psychedelics. Um, it is possible to re-traumatize yourself when, when you're, these tools are not used carefully. Yeah. And I mean, um, it's interesting you bring up Vipassana. I always feel like I'm kind of, in the end, I'm too scared to do it. <laughs> and I also don't know if I could follow up with the... It's a serious commitment. It is a super serious commitment. Yeah. But, but would you agree that psychedelics help you to find the person that you are without the trauma that you experienced? Is that like the very short version, maybe, what they do so, for you? So, so that's one way to describe it. Yeah. I, I, I think the way that I, that I, the way that I would describe it, there's, and, and again, there's, in, there's like infinite ways to describe oh, no, these course, experiences. Yeah. But one of the ways I would add on to that is it's almost like child's eyes, right? So it, it, it's this term that we use for looking at yourself and looking at the world again through the eyes of you as a child prior to all of the stuff that you learned about how the world is a dangerous, unsafe, or a cruel, unjust place, right? And all of a sudden, when you're able to look at yourself again through those eyes and from that perspective, regardless of what age you remember yourself being the last time you looked at yourself in the world through that perspective, it helps us remember that that's a perspective that we always have access to right? The medicine is just a catalyst. It just facilitates access to a perspective or to a state of mind. It's, it's not the source of how we get there. It's a tool that can be used to teach us and remind us that this is a state that we have access to if we remember that it exists and remember what it feels like and how to get there. And that simply by practicing the integration tools like self-gratitude, self-forgiveness, self-compassion, self-love is one example on a daily basis, we can actually shift that perspective and that perception of the world to one that is more consistent with who we actually know ourselves to be, which is, as you said, the version of ourselves that existed pre-trauma, right? And that the trauma happened and that it's an experience that modified how we see ourselves in the world, but it's not part of us right? It's not an actual part of our identity. That's the biggest miscon uh, misconception that people who have experienced trauma have is that the trauma is part of them. And it's yeah. not, it's, you know, it's, it's something that modifies your experience that we can use as a tool for growth as much as we can use as a tool to hold us back. 
Well, that's a great um, la last words, I would say, like what exactly psychedelics are doing for us. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dave, for being on the show. Um, I'm excited already for the next psychedelic news hour. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate it. And, and uh, always a pleasure to have this conversation. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club show and please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course, there's also a New Health Club now, or even better, sign up to our newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon.